This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these are opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Every stories, we'll yep. Google that and search it. And yep. I see. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of neat. I didn't know anything about it till we started doing it. Like I had heard about podcasts and was like, I don't know if that's applicable to what I'm doing. And then I don't know. I started listening to podcasts to try to figure out what they are. And and I, I figured, wow, this is a really cool way to communicate. Like mm-hmm. some of the stuff that you and I will get because we go to the rooms, right? Mm-hmm. But other people will never get because they know they don't know the side of us really. That is the recovering side, the part of us that just goes to work every day or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like whatever our story is, oftentimes people's stigma with it is stuck in what we were like before. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I know it's so far it's been fucking enlightening for me. So, yeah. So what, what, what was the driver? Why did you start doing this? Um, cause I wanted to get our stories out to people. I see. Yeah. Okay. I, I just, I, that was really what it was. And I didn't know if, if we would make it cause I really had no idea. Um, and we're coming up on our third year in September. So, uh, so people listen to them. Yep. Yeah. We get, he was, Darcy was saying we get about 550 downloads a month. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And all over the planet too. We've got some listeners some. in Ireland, Croatia, Australia. Yeah. California, Michigan, hmm. all over the states. That's neat. Yeah, all over the world. It's like 30 countries that have downloaded. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool. I, I mean, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess during this COVID, it's a great thing, right? Mm-hmm. A little extra something for people. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and me especially because I don't know. I, I can go. I go to online meetings because I've been a part of the program for long enough that I'm not worried about it. But some people don't feel right. And it's hard, right, to feel right about that. If mm-hmm. you're just getting used to it kind of thing. Sharing is hard, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you good to go? Well, we're recording now. You bugger. See, he does work for the government. <laughs> he has a government plant. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> Tony, um, welcome, man. Thank uh, you. Really nice to have you here. I have a lot of respect for you, man. Always have. Uh, and, uh, man, hearing your story would, is incredible. Just the idea of it. Just because I have so much respect for you. So don't worry, you're not going to fall off a pedestal or anything like that. <laughs> um, but that doesn't change the fact that I do value you and your role in the community of recovery, right? So 
but thank you for coming on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'll go. Um, yeah, it's, I, 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 I'm not prepared because I didn't know what this was about, mm -hmm. but uh, I guess that's the best way. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering addict. I'm a recovering cocaine, intravenous drug user, crackhead. I'm clean for, uh, it was 12 years in May. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you know, when I got into recovery, I used to think my story was unique and tragic and, and uh, profound. I guess it is to some degree, uh, but not as unique and tragic and profound as what I've seen others. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the some of the things I've run across certainly have humbled me. Um, but it's a story probably similar to everyone's that it's a bunch of loss and hurt and insecurities and not knowing and um, you know I was I was raised in Red Deer my father came was an immigrant from Yugoslavia my mother's half Chinese half Cree and we were uh, raised in Red Deer blue-collar home uh, there was I was very blessed that there was uh, no substance abuse in my home I, 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 I was never physically abused I was never sexually abused very blessed, um, but there were still um, parents separated when I was in about grade three, and um, and I thank God for the lack of abuse because I think that breakup was profound, and I think it it impacted me greatly, and I don't know where I would have been if some more tragic things would have happened mm -hmm. <laughs> like my resiliency when i th look back is like uh i'm a pretty gentle soul and i'm not as tough as i think and i think things have greater impact on me than i'm even aware of mm -hmm. when i look back because there wasn't a lot of you know when when you start thinking about um aces adverse childhood experiences mm -hmm. or trauma there wasn't a lot like you know there, there was i'm not discounting it but I'm just glad it, it, it. I was blessed to to not have had a very troubled life. Anyway, always feeling a little different, you know. Uh, all born on the poor side of town, um, and uh, that that made me feel a little different from the rest of the kids. Once I got into junior high and high school, but being native and Chinese too certainly did right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the parents, my mother. Like I said, they, they separated when I was about eight years old, grade three. But my mother played in a band, so they were never around, my parents. Uh, her, she, she got a new husband, and they, uh, he worked during the day, but they'd play in the, in the bars around central Alberta in the evenings, and they were never around. And, um, but ultimately feeling different than everybody else in the neighborhood my whole life. But... Uh, when I was about 13, my sister offered me some hash and, and I wanted to do it. I really did. And I found it at that time, it was intriguing to me and it was dark and mysterious. Mm -hmm. And it was this underworld that was, I was very curious about and I thought it was unique. And so I, I, I did it and never, never really got much into it. When I hit grade seven in Red Deer, the junior high was downtown. And, um, so I met a whole new demographic of people and, uh, relatively a pretty 
pretty stable young good boy up until grade seven. And then I met these people that my sister knew and they welcomed me because I was Terry's little brother. And of course now it's the inner city and um, Ridger's a little bit unique. It's a small town, but there's always been a pile of money and, and there was always a, a bike club influence, a rig hand, oil field influence, a bunch of farmers and ranchers. So it was hardcore redneck, hippie, biker, just a mis mixed match of, of Whole bunch of subcultures and um, I got I got welcomed in grade seven and and I uh, I embraced it and uh, from there I, I I started skipping school I started I, I started uh, to engage in the drug use a bit more you know because of the hash and the weed and I, I remember I just kept doing it I wasn't even getting high for the first two three weeks or a month but I, I kept at it and eventually it, it, it grabbed, I did get a feeling off it. Uh, and then I started doing crime, started doing break and enters. Uh, by the time, and you know, I, I was 13 then, I was already locked up. I got locked up, thrown into a youth assessment center, kept doing crimes, kept doing B&Es. And uh, by the time I was 14, I, I got thrown into a, a camp down here called Envirus. I was 14 or 15. Did three and a half months there, and um, it was profound. Those were very great people, and I had a great time, and I was embraced, and uh, it had a profound impact on me. But it, nonetheless, it didn't sway me from my wants. And, um, you know, I, uh, I returned back to Red Deer, and uh, never really got anywhere. I tried to take upgrading. And, um, you know, I, by then I only had like grade seven, kicked out of every public school in Redger because one of the B&Es I did was the, uh, a school mm -hmm. and they kicked me out of every public school. And um, not totally because of that. They gave me another chance to go to another school and I, n I never made it. And um, so I uh, started selling drugs, started selling drugs in Redger at about 16, 17. Um, and uh, I guess I was successful at it to a degree, uh, just enough to get busted, just mm -hmm. enough to bring enough attention to me and ended up in jail. Ended up in jail at about the age of 17 at Spy Hill here. Back then we were, there's no young offenders, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so by the time I was 17, I was, I, I did three stints locked up before I was 16 and then now I'm 17 and I'm in Spy Hill doing a three-month sentence for some marijuana possession for the purpose. I got out there and uh, started working the oil field, started working rigs and um, things were going pretty good and I, I liked it and in Red Deer back then you're pretty much destined, especially in that neighborhood I grew up, you were destined to work the oil field. Every mm. Everybody did, their dad did, the big brothers did and that's what you wanted to do and so that's that's what I pursued. Um, my parents and me were somewhat distant because, you know, after the going to jail and and doing what I was selling the drugs, I was pretty much my own person, and and there wasn't much of a connection. I remember coming home from the rig. I was working in Devon, and I'm driving, and I see my parents drive. You know, they're coming up in the van. We're just on the outskirts of Red Deer, and I tell the driller to stop and. 
I flagged down my parents and there were the vans all loaded. And I said, what's, what's going on? And they're like, we moved, we're moving. We're going to Yellowknife and your stuff's on the doors, doorstep. So I'm like, okay. So, uh, you know, they, we stopped at my old house and I picked up my stuff off the doorstep and I went and got a hotel room and, um, carried on, carried on working the rigs. I did very well in the rigs, um, worked my way up and, uh, Met, a, met my wife when I was about 21, 22, and she was a very good woman, very good girl. And uh, when I met her, I was just rising up in, in, in the ranks and I become a driller. And by the time I was 24, I was running an oil rig, which was kind of unheard of. I was, mm-hmm. I was pushing tools as a rig manager. And she was a pharmacy technician and we had a beautiful home and I was renting it from my, my parents. And, um, we, we tried to make a go out of it. Um, I had a daughter from a, a relationship I was in my teens. Mm-hmm. And um, one night when uh, I'm at home, my daughter's aunt comes knocking on my door. Says, you got to come grab Brandy. Um, Robin, Robin can't deal with her. Robin doesn't want her anymore. And she's going to give her away. And I, you know, they couldn't get me there soon enough. So I went and grabbed the child. The child was only two then, and I took her home. And my wife, Vicky, and Brandy just fell in love. And Vicky was a great mother. And I was running, you know, doing doing the rig thing and trying to raise this child. And young man, 23, 24, and life was good though. I, I was doing, I was very successful, making great money at that time in the early 80s. A huge amount of cash and. Um, never really paying much attention to Vicky or the child or home life, more wrapped up into that uh, work thing. Anyway, about a year goes by and um, uh, the mother of my daughter, Robin, wanted, uh, wanted, wanted the child back and I didn't want to give her back. I, I just thought it was unjust because she was uh, you know, she was engaged in drug use and she, they, her and her sweetie never had a job and they traveled and they were, there were a whole bunch of things. And I, I guess I was pretty judgmental and pretty self-righteous, but I didn't want to give up the child. I, th- I felt I offered a better home. And so we went to court and I lost, I lost. And, um, and that day broke my heart mm-hmm. that I, I prepared the little girl to tell her like what was going on. And that day I had to pick her up when I lost the judgment. I picked her up from daycare and I set her on my lap in my truck. And I told her, I said, the judge made a decision and, and you're going to go home to your mom. And she just started crying. She's just tiny. Eh? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it killed me. It, oh, I, it, it tore my heart out. I've never, I've never felt that in my life. It, it mm-hmm. ripped me in half. Eh? And I went off, I went off and, um, it was right about that time, uh, there were, the money was plentiful and I run into a consultant that had a cocaine connection. And, I, and, and, and during that time from jail to, there was about three, four years, five years that I worked my way up. I, I stayed away from the chemicals. I was just smoking weed, quite a bit of weed, mm-hmm. but I, I managed to just focus on work and, and stay away from the hard stuff. But right about that time, it would have been 85, 86, I run into this fellow and, and he was into the cocaine and he was intravenously using it. And uh, I did that earlier in my teens with with uh, speed and MDA. And so I was familiar with it. 
and uh, and I enjoy, I loved it. I never drank. I've never been a drinker. I've can count how many times I've been drunk on my hands. Yeah. I, I I get a headache. I physically get a headache, and I've never enjoyed it. So, this the the euphoric feeling I got from using needles was um, it was like I had arrived. Mm. And um, then with the loss of this child uh, through the courts, it it catapulted me. I didn't inability to deal with life on life's terms, mm. and I didn't know what to do. And I've never felt so lost. And I. I I felt crushed. I felt betrayed. I because uh, I did everything I was supposed to. You know, I quit being a criminal, and I was working, and my wife was working, and we had jobs, and we had cars, and we had a home, and I did everything that I thought society wanted me to, but yet I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Piss on it," and I walked away. I walked away from my hundred thousand dollar a year job, and my wife, and my home, and. And I got wrapped up into the cocaine, and um, and, and what that did was, was uh, I think it it altered me. I, I I think I crossed the line during that session, that that spree, and it, it fired up that phenomenon and a craving, and I got a taste for cocaine. I struggled with that drug my whole life, and um, ultimately, after that period of time. Um, I went off, stopped working for about a year or so, and I went back and forth. I'd work, take time off, work, do crime. Um, I was back and forth during these off times. I'd, you know, I, I would, I got into growing marijuana, cultivating, and I got busted, and and I got into uh, doing some safes and, and doing that type of, and I got busted. I ended up in prison. Meanwhile, you know, still trying to. It was this road I was trying to walk of, of I knew what I should do but it was like I was always getting pulled to the dark side and it, it still intrigued me and and I enjoyed it I guess I, I liked I liked the thrill of it I think it was a buzz and um, ultimately you know that lifestyle and I and I uh, I wasn't faithful I wasn't faithful to my wife we had a child in 92. And it was turmoil from from the time I lost Brandy, which would have been '86, to the time we had Lisa in '92. It was—I I can't believe my wife stuck with me. She was just this wonderful, supportive woman. Um, it reminds me of that song by the band, "A Drunkard's Dream." If you ever did know one, right? You know, yeah, probably the enabler and all those other codependent things. But what a woman! Mm-hmm. And 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 I betrayed her. And. Um, uh, I left her for another woman and left left Lisa at a abandoned my child, and of course, you know I, I I hooked up with this other woman, and that in itself that betrayal and that abandonment weighed heavy on me, and and so much in in the throes of my addiction and so much denial, mm-hmm. bury that stuff and never acknowledge it and never, never face it or I don't I probably. Probably even if someone would have put it in my face, I would have got angry and never would have owned it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it had its consequences, you know, and it reared its head. And uh, with this other woman for eight years, and and as karma would have it, beautiful, beautiful karma. She cheated on me. Mm. Yeah, and it was funny. It was eight years later, you know, Dave, and and she did it to me, and and I'm so thick. 
Sometimes I pride myself being a smart guy, yeah. and sometimes I'm just stupid. And 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 <laughs> it, it was eight years later she did it to me, and it was only then that I realized, you know, I'm there, and I'm in. It was in Grand Prairie. I was working on a rig. Life was good, picking my way back up, and 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 it was only then that I realized, like, oh my lord, this is what I did to my wife. This is how my wife felt. It was like, oh, what did I do? Mm. Like. It was only when it happened to me I was, I could realize what I did to mm-hmm. to Vic, and um, karma at its finest, you know, and uh, and and even that time, those eight years with that woman, it was it was on and off. It was the same struggle I had with Vic, in and out of uh, detoxes and and proverbial saying no and. And it was a binge type using. I'd, I'd do it once a month, every two months, and I did that for like fifteen years. Mm-hmm. But when I do it, I do my, I do two, three thousand dollars a weekend, and and but then not do it again. I wouldn't do it again until my arms healed up, or uh, you know, until I, until I get another paycheck. Mm-hmm. And I was that textbook addict, you know, and uh, that you know what they talk about in the big book, powerless, where I can't. Uh, I can't say it verbatim, but you know, without sufficient force, pull up the memory of the last debauch. Yeah. I that was me, and I yeah. did that for fifteen years, you know, and and again trying to the, the textbook, you know, trying to do it with impunity mm-hmm. uh, for fifteen twenty years. Oh, I'll only do forty dollars. I'll only do it here. I'll give you my card. I'll 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 do this. I'll do that. I'll do this. You know, all the negotiating, all the negotiating, and <laughs> never come out on top yeah. ever. And and do that and lie to myself. I was going to do a forty piece, or a half a gram, for fifteen years. I did that a thousand times, and I never ever did stop at a half a gram. And this great lie I told myself. Anyway, you know, it ultimately led. I she broke up with me, or she she ended up cheating on me. We parted ways, and I and then I. It was on and off, on and off, and I'm trying to trying to get it together. And and each time I'm screwing up, I'm going a little bit deeper and a little bit worse, and throwing away my career a little bit more and my reputation. And um, end up in in my my father lived in Yellowknife. I, I sought refuge up there for a few months and sober up and go back into the oil patch. And I ended up in. In about the early late 1990s, 2000, I ended up in Fort St. John, Grand Prairie area, running a rig, and I met a girl there, and uh, she was a good woman. And but again, I, I'm just into the addiction, and I, I threw that away too. She tried to rescue me. She she got me into treatment, and we tried to have a family, and and it didn't work. You know, I threw that away too. So it gets to about 2,000-ish, and um, and I've exhausted. I'm starting to exhaust the oil field, you know, with my antics up in Fort St. John and Grand Prairie, and and stealing from the rig companies. And of course, you're entrusted with credit cards and purchase orders, and and I'm just annihilating any trust that they gave me, and ultimately ruined my name. And uh, and because of uh, turning my back on my child, I, they took my license. Mm-hmm. So I had no license. They took. They. I, I was trying to get to, uh, um, 
South America through a company out of Louisiana. They got wind of that. They took my passport. Mm. And um, so I felt hopeless. I felt very hopeless. And, and again, that denial, you know, I, not enough sense or accountability to realize I put myself into this pickle. I'm responsible for it, but I blamed maintenance mm. for them taking away my career. You know, and and one thousand percent believed it was their fault. Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly validated me to, and 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 I was I had this. I'll be quite blunt, and and I remember at one point when I found out they took my license, it, it was like, fine, I I will, I will sell crack to your children. I'll fuck your wives when you're at work, mm. and I'll and you'll never see a cent from me, and that was my mantra, mm. and I owned it. And I went off, and I went off. So I returned to Red Deer, and of course, growing up there, uh, and and being into that that criminal element in my younger years, those people now were were very engaged into the mm. cocaine world, and I was greeted with open open arms, and it allowed me to to exist into this world, and and I, I wasn't really all that familiar with it. It seemed to the the crack world and the cocaine world seemed to have escalated while I was away at work, yeah. and and it, it become very dark and shady and 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 uh, bad. Mm-hmm. But I soon I found my way, and and I soon caught up to the play, and and I adapted and and got into it, and um, I hit a bottom, and I just owned it. I owned. It was probably the first time I never. I stopped binging and then you know that binge juice that I was talking about that got you know that I played for with for 15 years it got to daily use Mm. and it got to everyday use and now come 2001 2002 I'm homeless I'm in Red Deer and uh, you know no license no employment wearing it like a badge Mm. where and uh, I'm going hell bent for leather, and Red Deer is was unique at that time. I don't know if it still is, but and it was unique for me too because I knew so many people, and it was a small city. I've always described it as a small city that's trying to be big, mm. and they had the money to do it. There was always money there because of the oil patch. But I existed, Dave, for about four years, mm. not working, and I would just go from crack house to crack house, and I would uh, either watch their door or I would start middling drugs, or I would sell it at the house, or I would collect money. I would do whatever. I could do it between the five, six houses, and I, I, I could always middle in and remain high. I honestly think over those four years, there was only one or two days I never got high. And, and it was 24-7. 24-7 all day long, and I would go till I drop. I, I, the, I, I remember going for 11 days one time, straight without sleep. Till I, I just your body gives out, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't a, a full four years. I would go until I piled up, until I couldn't go no more, and I'd run to the refuge of my mother, who at that time moved down from the ter- territories to Watasquin, and I would uh, seek refuge at her place in Watasquin, and she, of course they greet me with open arms, and I'd, I'd go there and I put some weight back on clear the cobwebs, shake the dust off in about a month or two and return back to Red Deer, eh? And this on-off cycle uh, lasted about four or five years. 
in um, in 2005, I, I'm do I'm I'm selling it and I'm I'm downtown and and we had a we had the run of the bar. There was a bar that me and a friend we we worked out some some business with some people that kind of ran the town and uh, we had the run of this bar and uh, the manager knew what we were up to and and everybody just stayed out of our way and it was free reign and um, I. Uh, I run into a fellow. I was introduced to a fellow that uh, wanted uh, some some cocaine on a cuff, and I cuffed it to him. I gave it to him, and he ultimately ended up not paying me, and uh, I, um, then offered up his truck, and I and uh, I took his truck in payment, and then um, shortly after I took it, I got picked up, and they phoned hit that fellow, and he grabbed his truck back, and. Um, I felt betrayed by that, and uh, four or five months later, I, I run into this fellow. It was New Year's Eve, or it was Christmas Eve, two thousand five. I run into this fellow at a crack house, and uh, I decided to take my truck back that day, and I made him sign it over. And um, after he signed it over, um, he went to the police. And that night, on December twenty fifth, two thousand five, I got charged with extortion and kidnapping. And uh, that was that was the beginning of the end. I never, it never bothered me a whole lot. To tell you the truth, there was a, there was a time when a police officer, I was downtown and I had two black eyes. I got in a fight, and um, actually it wasn't even a fight. I got jumped in a crack house because I ripped a fellow off, mm. and two guys found me there, and I tried to fight my way out of it. And um, anyway, I, I'm beat up black and blue. And I remember this police officer, he stopped me in the back alley a few days after that. And he looks at me, he's like, well, look at you, like you're dying. Like, mm. Tony, you used to be in, into manager management. And he knew some of my history, right? Mm. He was like, you were successful before. He's like, look at you, you got two black eyes. And, and this is what I told him. I said, I don't care. I said, uh, I don't really care what you think or what you I said. It's win-win for me. Any way I go, it's win-win. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, you don't catch me. I, I don't work. I don't pay taxes. I do the drug of my choice. I sleep in hotels. I do whatever the fuck I want. Mm -hmm. I said, and if you do catch me, I'll go to prison. I'll get strong and I'll clean up. So I don't really care. Whatever, it's win-win for me. And then he looked at me and he, he what do you say to that? Yeah. You know, that's probably the most honest thing that come out of my mouth, right? And he literally just kind of, he looked over my head and kind of shook his head and walked away. He, yeah. There was no retort to that. It was, yeah. and I was willing to accept it. Mm -hmm. And in the back of my head, I knew probably the only thing that would ever sober me up is death or, or, or jail. Yeah. So I, uh, of course I jumped court and I didn't, I didn't even have enough sense to be able to commit to my legal commitments. And I, I uh, eluded my court dates and I ended up with Canada-wide warrants. I stole a truck and I went, ran away to Nanaimo and I got taken down there in Nanaimo and that was the start of my sentence. And I believe that was in, that would have been in uh, early 2006. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, once they picked me up there, they weren't letting me out. And I uh, started my sentence. Uh, uh, I ended up getting a two-year federal sentence. And... Uh, you know, when I got picked up in Nanaimo, 
and I got thrown in that cell. Honestly, I'll, I'll never forget that day, Dave. I, I go in there and it was like, done. Yeah. I'm finally done. I was pleased. Mm-hmm. I was not, I, I wasn't bummed out. I was like, I'm finally done. It's yeah. done. You know, and I was, I was grateful. And I, they, and they thought that I was on opiates because I slept for four days, mm-hmm. but it was because I was going so long on, on the cocaine. Eh? Yeah. And, um, uh, I didn't care. And I, I um, started my sentence and I ended up doing a total of 11 months locked up before I got out on early parole. And I never did a day. I did every day sober and I never did any drugs in there. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity. And I get out and I, I got an opportunity to go to a treatment center slash halfway house and did quite well there. And um, I was very well embraced and... and uh, I came to Calgary and I discovered there was this recovery community here. And and it was profound coming here because I, when I first started going to NA meetings in Red Deer in 87, nobody, there was one NA meeting and nobody knew how to run the meetings and nobody knew what they should do. They would literally, Dave, drug log for an hour. Yeah, That's all they knew, right? And it was, and then I went up to Grand Prairie years later and tried to clean up and they had they were doing pretty good up there in hindsight and uh but between red deer and grand prairie that influenced the 12 step i never met anybody at that time with any length of time from cocaine Mm -hmm. and i honestly thought i might never be able to beat it because i never met anybody with any substantial amount of clean time from intravenously using cocaine and and smoking crack until I got to Calgary Mm -hmm. and you know the the meetings are so huge and and it's been going for so long I met some people and it actually that was probably the biggest springboard of hope I ever had was Mm -hmm. like it's doable it's doable I these people got 20 25 years and they were doing it I know they're doing it because I've talked to them you know and uh, and their lives aren't a mess and and their lives aren't a mess and they're successful and they got away it was was like it, it can be done it can mm. be done, right? And that alone was probably sparked the biggest fire of hope. So I embraced this recovery community when I got to this halfway house slash treatment center. And um, um, I, I thought I was very sincere and, and very earnest and very enthused. And they, they liked me. And they, you know, I started doing service work in the treatment center and, 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 uh, embraced it the best I could. Ultimately, I ended up relapsing because, mm. I don't know, I'm full of shit. I, I think it's denial. It was I denied a lot of things, yeah. right? And um, I like that, man. I'm full of shit. That's exactly what I would have said when I came in. Yeah. I yeah. drank because I'm full of shit. I'm, I was just full yeah. of shit. Didn't even know it at that time. Thought I was solid, yeah. you know. And, um, yeah, so, you know, when, by the time I got here in, in 2007 at that time, I'm $111,000 in debt. I have hep C, you know, and that's a story to itself. Mm-hmm. I, I gave myself hep C. I was in Grand Prairie years before, and, I, and I, I met a fellow I'm using at my friend's apartment. He wasn't there. I met a fellow that was a speaker at an NA meeting, and he was a profound speaker. And um, that day I'm using, he's using too. And we went to my friend's apartment and we're, we're fixing and I stole his hit. 
I stole his rig off the table and he became frantic. And he's like, you, you can't take it. And I said, I don't have it. And he, he becomes frantic and he knew I was lying and I wouldn't own it. And I'm like, whatever, I don't got it. He, he looked for it, he couldn't find it. As soon as he's gone, well, before he left, he said, you can't take it. I have hep C. Mm -hmm. I said, I ain't got it. And he left and I found it and I stuck it in my arm. Mm -hmm. I knew that needle had hep C, but I didn't care. I wanted one more ringer. And, you know, that shows, you know, to me, that's always been one of the great indicators of how far I went, right? And... Um, that is profound, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like a profound, like, opening into the, the mind of us, right? Yeah. Like an addict, yeah. Like, did not care. Yeah. I, the, the thought of having five-minute... For mm -hmm. feeling outweighed, you know, possible death or yeah. you know, disease. Um, yeah. That's so, I come here. Through I threw away a twenty-three year career. By the time I get here, family ain't talking to me. I have no friends in Red Deer. I'm I was a hundred and eleven thousand dollars in debt. By the time I got here, 53 of that, 56 was to the child mm -hmm. for maintenance. The other was was for pickup trucks and, and everything else. So 111 in debt, had hep C, no home, no career, no license. And and after I'd done treatment, I remember I, I didn't know what to do. I mm -hmm. felt hopeless again. Yeah. I'm sober and I'm hopeless. And I didn't know, I didn't see a way out. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, is like, what do I do? I can't, you know, I, I got to get an apartment. How do I get an apartment? I got to get a job and I can't get a job because I ain't got a license. And if I get this apartment, I got to get rent. I got to get the first month and the last month and I got to get deposit for gas. And how do you get gas? And I got to get, I get it for the electricity. And who do I talk to for that? And then I got to get furniture and I got to get food. And I don't know how to do that, but I got to get a job, but I don't have a license. And I got to get a license. And the only way I can get a license is to get a lawyer. And I ain't got a lawyer because I need a retainer. And I need $1,500 to get the retainer. And I can't get, you know, and it was just, just this in my head and, and not, I thought I embraced recovery, but I didn't understand it. I never really dug into it. I never understood about step two, maybe asking for some help. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that obsession and that fear was what they was really what that insanity is. Yeah, you know, it wasn't explained to me like that. But I was, I was, I was not of sound mind, mm -hmm. and I certainly didn't reach out to anything. And I stated, in, in, and so, you know, the first opportunity, I, I, I had. And, and I set myself up one day, I'm t me and these co-workers are talking about it. So I, you know, talking about using all day long at work. By the time the day's done, I'm literally vibrating. I get dropped off in a high-risk area downtown. And, and I see a girl, a working girl I knew from, from Red Deer, and she was scoring. And, you know, I bought a pack of smokes, turned around, and there was this lady scoring that I knew from Red Deer. And off I go. And I used. And... Um, ultimately back to jail for another nine months. Mm. And again, I never used again, never used one day and uh, stayed clean, but I didn't want to come back to Calgary because that didn't work. So I go back to Red Deer, my hometown, people, places and things mm. and uh, stayed clean for about four days in my hometown. And I went off for 30 days, exactly 30 days. And um, I lost a pound a day. 
And, and I, I was 195 when I got out of jail, and I was 165 the day they picked me up on May 15th, 2008. That was the last day I used. Mm. And actually, it was May 14th was the last day. And um, I got picked up, and I, and I had to go back to jail. And, um, and again, you know, that, that 30 days was so, uh, it so indicated to me the progression and I, I was hell bent for leather. And I felt again, this state of hopelessness and why not, you know, and, and I just, I started drinking straight whiskey and I didn't even like it. And I was doing pills and I was doing down. I, I was, I, I, I took it to a level I never, ever went to blackouts and just uh, hell-bent for leather, reckless abandon, I guess, is the perfect word. And uh, thank God I got picked up. And I, and I had four months left of my sentence. So I had to go back and I did three more months. Again, I did those three months stone straight sober. I never did anything. I didn't totally waste the, those three little stints in jail either. I got my GED. Mm-hmm. I learned how to lift weights. I got a little healthy every time I went in there. I read... Every book I could read, mm-hmm. I did uh, their NSAP course. That's a National Substance Abuse Program, mm-hmm. and I did some other courses. They these ladies snuck me in some cocaine crack courses, and I did that. So it wasn't a total waste. Anyway, I get out, and I thought I'd return to Calgary and, and return to that treatment center, and I did, and that was in. That would have been. You know, fall the fall late summer, fall of 2008, completed that. And and this time I knew it was like, I am not going to complete this and be hopeless again. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have this big pile of crap. And I remember even thinking about that when I was using, I knew the, the conundrum I was in was, mm-hmm. I created this big mountain of crap. You know, no, the children, the maintenance, the mm-hmm. guilt, the shame, the the license, the employment, all these things. And I never knew how to deal with it. And I was so fearful of and not knowing. And this mountain I created, it was just easier to do another hit. Mm -hmm. And every night I did a hit, another brick went on top of the mountain Mm -hmm. and I made it larger. And I knew that. I knew that. I remember telling someone that when I was using, you know. So I was aware of that. So anyway, I get I finished those three months and, and clearly remembering what happened the first time I was there in that state of hopelessness is like, this is not happening. I am not standing at that doorway, three months clean, completing treatment and feeling hopeless again. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I got, got back into Calgary, I started to deal with these major life issues mm-hmm. with my maintenance. I started, I, I, you know, I contacted legal aid and I got that. I, I contacted cops, you know, for the hep C. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I found a job. I uh, took step eight and nine seriously, mm-hmm. and I started to. I'm, I'm, I got to clear this up with my kids. I got to start, and I was so scandalous using. I, I, I ripped off my friends and my family, and that bore so heavy on me, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm sure that contributed to that relapse and that hopelessness. And uh, and and so I never. I wrote step eight out. And I never laid it to rest. Mm-hmm. And I was very cognitive of where it was, and I very cognitive of who was on there. Mm-hmm. And and as soon as the opportunity, or as soon as six and seven was done, I started I started tackling mm-hmm. eight. You know, and ultimately, you know, short while after treatment, 
I didn't clear up that big mountain, but I certainly poked a hole through and I could see some light. Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is doable. Yeah. This is doable. I, I had bankruptcy on the way, so 56 of that 111 was taken care of. I was going back to court and that, that was okay. That's mm -hmm. getting taken care of. Dealing with cups. I could see it. There, there was hope there, eh? And um, I ended up meeting a guy in jail that was uh, drywalling. So that this, the, the fall of 2008, I drywalled with him until April. He had a couple of years clean, but I could see him. Um, I could see him going off. I could see his lack of humility and arrogance. It was just rubbing me the long way, wrong way. And I could see him change. Stuff was going on, eh? So I, I left him. I left him. And the treatment center I was working at, um, was building a new one. And I, I got a job there in April of 2009 as a flag person. They were, they were excavating. And I stayed on as a flag person until I got on that site as a laborer. And I stayed on that site for two years, building that treatment center and um, worked my way up to foreman on that site. While I was doing that, I got an opportunity to work with Calgary Drug Treatment Court. Mm. They wanted me because I, by that time I had a couple years clean at the end of that, hey? I had two years clean, I, I, um, I'm working, and I had this history of, of incarceration. And they wanted someone like me to go in there, and it was just a client support worker, but what I'd do is I would test the guys in jail that were applicants for the mm. Calgary Drug Court, and uh, then I'd transfer that information over to the drug court team and then I'd pick them up on a Monday, take them to the appropriate treatment center they were slated to go to and then test them mm. twice a week. So I, I started doing that and and that kind of solidified my, you know, who, who I was trying to be. Because mm -hmm. not only was I building this treatment center, so I'm, I'm, I'm there, but I was also still living in the second stage housing of that treatment center and, um, and, um, working with drug court. So I'm, I'm pretty much ingrained mm -hmm. and dove into the program too. I'm doing four or five meetings a week. I'm, I got a home group. I'm, I'm, I'm doing mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to be doing to the best of my ability. And um, uh, shortly after, you know, uh, I'm probably about two, two and a half years in, still got that position as foreman. I get an opportunity to work at uh, a native treatment center. Mm -hmm. And so I, as a client support worker, so I did that. I did that. I was very excited about that. And I did that for about eight, nine months and, um, great organization and great learning and, um, and still keeping on with the Calgary drug treatment court, doing that on the side. So life was okay. And, and it certainly assisted me with the direction and purpose that I was trying to get to, right. It defined me, it was, you know, and, uh, after about nine months or 10 months, I get the opportunity to go back to that treatment center that I went through. Now I'm about three years clean, roughly, and um, to come back as a junior counselor. So I did that. I did that. And uh, and I remember having a conversation with you down at that church uh, right oh, about yeah, that time right. in the back alley, right? Yeah. yeah. And you gave me some good information there. I'll, and I'll never forget it, you know, about never become so arrogant that I think these, these clients are all mine and to be a little bit open about that. And, and it's a team thing and, and everybody's got a piece about that. And, um, anyway, I'm still with that organization. Awesome. It, it's nine years. It'll be 10 years in this October. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm the lead addiction counselor there now. 
Um, I got 12 years clean. Life is good. Um, I've, I've, uh, I just recently, I, I own a home with my parents. They, they wanted me to move in with them. I wasn't really excited about that, mm -hmm. but you know, in my darkest days, they never closed their door. Mm -hmm. And I thought I need to, yeah. I, I need to do this, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, one of my fears that I wrote in, um, in step four was my parents dying because mm -hmm. I knew I didn't deal with loss that well. Yeah. And my father passed away and, uh, I never thought about using, you know, mm -hmm. but I wish I would have stayed up there. He, he died in Yellowknife and I went up there prior about a week before he died. And I always wished I would have stayed and I had that regret that I could have hung out another week, but I didn't know how long he was going to mm -hmm. live and I had to get back to work too, but kind of wished I would have stayed. But that, that confirmed in me that I shouldn't be sober and have regrets. Mm. And, and that really solidified that decision of with the, with living with the parents and buying this house with yeah. them is I'm not, I don't really want to yep. live in the basement and I don't really want to live with the folks, but I'm not having regrets where I, Oh, I could have helped. I should have, yeah. I, you know, I thought, no regrets, no regrets. So I totally get that. Man. Yeah. So I did that and I'm still there. And, and you know, in all fairness, or in all truth, anyway, it was a great economic move for me because mm -hmm. it was, uh, you know, coming in, cleaning up at 46, it's hard to play catch up. Mm -hmm. You know, I had visions of, of living in a boarding house. And mm -hmm. and uh, anyway, it was it was a good financial move for me. And I'm still there. And we have a beautiful home. Mm -hmm. And I, I recently just bought seven acres of land up in Bonneville area beside my sister. Oh, cool. I know. It, that was profound for me. Yeah. And, and I've, I've been able to buy it lock, stock, and barrel. I've saved my money. So it was something I never thought. I would never have dreamed I'd been able to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's hopefully where I retire. Yeah. So, you know. Oh, congratulations, man. Yeah. That's I'm, amazing. Yeah, I'm very, it's probably one of my biggest achievements for, you know, other than reconnecting with my daughter. And uh, What's that like today? Like, what's it like with your daughter? I have two daughters. Yeah. And during my addiction, during that downfall, uh, they're 10 years apart. And my youngest one was Lisa, who I had with my wife. Mm -hmm. And the other one was Brandy, the one that I lost. Mm -hmm. um, w by the time I got out of jail, the relationships were toast. Mm -hmm. I made my amend with Brandy. And, um, and uh, what did she just turn in June? I think she turned 38 in June and we talk every Sunday, every mm -hmm. Sunday we talk for, um, about an hour yeah. and she's the apple of my eye and, uh, it's great. It's Fantastic. great. It's, it's been rebuilt and, um, it's where it should be. Mm. The youngest one, Lisa, I made contact with her, um, about five, six years ago mm -hmm. and, um, via messenger facebook and it, i i apologized i i would have preferred to do it in person but i didn't know where she's at mm -hmm. and of course don't want to hurt them so i i tried to be as diplomatic and tactful as i could when i wrote this message to her apologizing and it was uh, well received but she indicated i don't know where to go with this and mm -hmm. i don't know you know so for the last five six years i've messaged her all as much as i can and uh, she never messages me. Mm -hmm. She'll message me back, but she'll never message me first. Mm -hmm. She'll never initiate yeah. it. 
and uh, never wished me Christmas or happy birthday or anything. And um, a couple of years back, you know, I come to realize she doesn't wish me happy Father's Day either. And uh, she just so, you know, I, she doesn't acknowledge me, I guess, as her father. But fair enough, you know. But I've, um, I'm not giving up on my kids, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, people say, I don't care what people say, yeah. I will not give up on my children. And um, I'll uh, I'll continue to reach out. I understand, you know. I'm I feel for, I feel because she's holding resentments or mm -hmm. fear, and and I know it's only going to burden her. Mm -hmm. um, I realize that she's hurt. It all boils down yeah. to hurt and loss, and I don't get to say when that heals. Mm -hmm. So I'll go with it. I'll go with it until I can't go with it anymore. Yeah. Right. So. I'll continue to message her and, mm -hmm. and, and be cor as cordial as I can. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, she'll come around. And I get a little upset. It's like, don't say that because you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. You, you don't know. We hope she comes around and that's a beautiful ending. But nonetheless, I'm not going to give up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my daughter, when I took a couple of years back, Brandy, who I'm very close with now and the relationship is wonderful. I took 10 years and she's on Instagram mm -hmm. and um, my girlfriend's on Instagram too. And uh, Crystal, my girlfriend, shows me this thing that Brandy put up when I took my 10 years. And she was very proud of me and all these accolades, but she said something on there that was very profound was she said, even after five years, she was waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, and probably because for 30, she watched the shoe drop. Yeah. And I, it, 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 it's a great indicator example of the pain mm -hmm. that we cause to our loved ones. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just because I'm cleaned up and because I go to meetings, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean not, not nothing. It don't mean shit to them. Mm -hmm. You know, they've seen the failed attempts. And again, I don't get to dictate how quick she heals. That's right. Right? Yeah. But I think she's got some faith in me now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think she's waiting for that other shoe to drop. I think she, she thinks I'm... Um, solid mm -hmm. and you know at the end of the day that's all that really matters to me yeah. family and and uh yeah it's family and friends and mm -hmm. relationships you know i'll tell you something was um a couple of years back i was i was at the flea market and i had a pain in my chest and uh uh i i, I started driving home i thought it was nothing it was it started in my stomach and went in my chest and i'm driving down mcknight and I was going to head home. By the time I get almost home, I'm having, I, I've never felt pain like that. And I, I think I'm having a heart attack. So I pull into PLH and I, I like a bandit and I get in there and into the emergency room and, and the doctor, everything, everybody's there, you know, and I'm laying in this bed. And I remember the doctor, this young doctor, he's just worried about the pain I'm in. Mm -hmm. And he's very nice. And he, always tending to me and he said to me he goes do you know what just happened i said i think i had a heart attack but you did and i started crying eh? wow. not i don't know why i cried it was just sad eh it is sad it, it is i was just sad like really you know you know and my sweetie crystal's there and my brother's there and my best friend's there and everybody's there and, and i'm thinking wow wow you know and they're still freaking because mm -hmm. they don't know if another one's coming right and i'm thinking I could fucking die right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm laying in this bed in the operating or in the emergency. I'm looking at a fluorescent light and 
Um, you know, everybody's hustling and bustling, and all these nurses and mm-hmm. all my people around me, and I, I zoned out. And I'm thinking, am I okay? Am I okay to, you know, mm. am I okay with the world? Am I okay? And, and you know, it's like, yeah, I am. Mm. I, I am okay. I'm. I, and then you know, okay. I don't really want to, but if we're gonna walk through the fucking valley, mm-hmm. uh, let's do this. Yeah, I, I'm okay with this. Mm-hmm. Don't. Again, I'm not. I don't really want you. You're not asking for. I'm it. not asking for it, but I'm okay <laughs> with it now. And that was yeah. profound for me. Mm-hmm. And and there was a sense of peace that come about me, and mm. fear was was no longer. It was like, okay, this is where we're at now. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. I got my ducks in a row. Yeah, that was profound to me, you know. And and uh, I think about it later in groups as I'm going through the steps, and, and it that showed me so much about step five, why we mm-hmm. tell God ourselves another human being, because I come to realize it's a triangle. And if if I'm okay with the world, if I think if I'm okay with the world then I'm okay with me because mm-hmm. I'm not feeling shame and guilt. And if I'm okay with me, then I don't, then I'm okay with God. Yeah. And that, that's that triangle. Mm-hmm. And, and if I, it, it all ties together because mm-hmm. if I'm okay with God, then I'm okay with everybody else. If I'm okay with me, then I haven't harmed or hurt yeah. anybody else. And it, and it was like, okay, I, yeah, I'm okay with everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm not, yeah. Uh, Once you get there to that precipice, hey, it's like all bets are off now. Yeah. Because I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay with me. Yeah, you know, and it's the the big ones. I think I dealt with, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's eternal damnation for my cousin. So yeah. I, I think I'm okay. <laughs> That's how I look at it too. I think I think I'm okay with the cousin after it all. It's all said yeah. done, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 of course I screw up in a lot, probably a lot more ways than that. But you know, this what the program affords us is I you know I can look at myself now mm-hmm. and sometimes and if if I don't there's. People that certainly will tell me, but I, you know, I, well, I, if you're I, lucky, you've got people. Like yeah, that. yeah. And I'm willing to look at it and ponder yeah. it and and try to fix it. You know, I'll, I'll try and do that six mm-hmm. and seven. You know, and uh, strive to be the you know to me six and seven mm-hmm. is just strive to be the best version of me. Yeah. And and I've made that internal commitment mm-hmm. to do you know to look at myself and when I'm smoking too many cigars, mm-hmm. I, you know, I that need to tone that down. Yeah. And, and if I'm and my eyes are straining and I'm thinking about those pretty girls too much. I, you know, I need to look at that mm-hmm. and I need to look at, you know, or if I, if I go gamble and if I gambling too many times, I can need to look at that. And it's mm-hmm. like, what's inside of me? Why am I seeking these outside things? What's, yeah. what's really going on? Mm-hmm. Why isn't life good enough? Why isn't home? Why isn't my sweetie? What's, mm-hmm. why isn't my job fulfilling? Yeah. Why, you know, and I guess I've got enough recovery now to, that I can ponder that, and mm-hmm. I got enough support that they can tell me maybe. Yeah, you know, and I think I'm close enough to God that you know that uh, loves there. Mm-hmm. You know that I love myself. Yeah, because that's what I really think God is. I think it's love. I think He's love. Yeah, I'm with you, hundred percent. Yeah, because I, I think know. I think if there's no love, there's no God. Yeah, and I don't know any other way because he, yeah. he hasn't texted me or emailed me, <laughs> and I don't see the burning bush, but I do see yeah. love. Yeah, and that's the only way, you know. And and it correlates with what we read in that book, you know, the mm-hmm. fundamental idea of God. And I think the fundamental idea is God's love. Yeah, and in the last analysis, it's in me and you, mm-hmm. and that's can't be put more simply. So yeah. I think Bill knew is like, look, you're not going to see it. The only place you'll see it is really good, and that's love. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me now. Yeah, because how else can we describe it, right? Like yeah. It's it's so it's described in so many different ways that I think 
if you take all the theories and put them together, the love is the answer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's the only, I think it's an energy. Mm -hmm. I think it's between you and me and every other human. I think it's something out there. I really mm -hmm. do. Yeah. I don't know what it is though. I ain't got a clue. Not, ain't got a clue. Yeah. But I'm sure it's something out there. That's why I need faith and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's, everything happens the way it should. I ain't got a clue what it is, yeah. but I know that it's love. And, and you know what? That's like, um, I can't think of a better way to try to recover, right? Mm -hmm. Is to be open to the fact that it could be anything. It's mm -hmm. kind of like you said, like, I have no idea what 20 years looks like, right? Yeah. But I know what 15 years looks like, right? And But until we get to that 20, it's it's about having faith to get there. Mm -hmm. If that's whatever, just throwing that out there. But the combination of all the theories that bring me any sort of peace and happiness, right, are the ones that connect to love. Yeah. Love amongst us, not mm -hmm. love as in some separate thing that we bring and only when we bring it, it's there, yeah. right? It's like, no, it's not about us. It's about that the universe is about the universe and that's including all of us, mm -hmm. right? Like, and to me, that's, if I'm not inclusive like that, then I'm not doing my duty, right? Yeah. Like to other people's. Yeah. 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 You mentioned it a few times, Tony, that purpose that, that we're given, yeah. you know, and I, I talk about it at length with people is if you want purpose, get clean. Yeah. Because we'll give you a purpose that you don't even have to think about. Mm -hmm. And that purpose is other people. Absolutely. Right. You know, it's, it's, I couldn't realize a few years ago it was like perfect. I remember running a rake, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I'm king of the show out there. But then I also, you know, I'd be the last man on the location. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and I remember this one time I'm up, it's a multi-million dollar operation and, and a big, big operation up there. We've been up there for six months. And at the end of the day, I'm the last man on location. And I have to wait till all the trucks, all the men are gone. Everything's done. I got to make sure. And it's just me and this wellhead and, and a gauge, a pressure gauge with the needle over. Mm -hmm. And it's like, really? That's what I'm here for? <laughs> yeah. To move that needle over mm -hmm. to, 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 you know, 7 MPA? That's it? Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember thinking, how shallow, like how menial, mm -hmm. you know? And then and I remember a few years back thinking about, about where I'm at now and he's like, this was meant to be mm. because every bad thing, every terrible thing I ever did led me to this. Mm -hmm. And I had to do jail. I had to do losses. I had to do all those things to get where I'm at now. It was actually all those things, not only doing them, but being able to overcome them, mm -hmm. which was attractive to my employers. Mm -hmm. Right? So if I wouldn't have done that stuff, because I'm not the academic, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't, it's like, I, it was, was meant to be. I had to go that route. It was like this, the university of hard knocks and mm -hmm. each, each three years was a class, mm -hmm. you know? It was like God's going, okay, we're going to teach you about homelessness. Now we're going to teach you about disease. Yeah. Now we're going to teach you about loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to teach what, you, a, yeah. what a way to learn. Yeah. Some mental health here. How about some psychosis? Yeah. We're going to have some empathy there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's but you know what we laugh, but it's how we it's how I was given empathy too. Mm -hmm. Here's here's some shit. Yeah, you can have like because in a lot of ways, privileged in some ways and completely under the under the water in other ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and if we didn't have that, we'd have very little, right? Yeah, because I'm I'm like you, I'm just not an academic. It's just not my forte. Mm -hmm. I love working with people and being with people, and that's mm -hmm. to me what it's all about. 
I, you know, we have these practicum students and they're nurses and I work with a couple of people and they're just kind. They're just mm -hmm. really nice people. And yeah. I'm thinking, you know, and I tell, I tell some of the men, the clients, I'm like, this guy, he's born that way. Like mm -hmm. he's the kindest guy I know. And, and it's like, I'm not like that. I only do it because I'm supposed to stay sober because <laughs> They told me if I'm nice, I'll <laughs> say, okay, so I'm just doing this because, okay, this, this, this fucker, he was born that way, yeah. okay? Same with those nurses. Like, yeah. there's something inherent in them. Right out of the chute, they want to be nice and help mm. people. And then I'm only fucking talking to you because they said I'll stay sober. But I think <laughs> I think anything you practice, you'll get good at. Yeah. And I think you take the body and the mind will follow. Mm -hmm. And I think... A lot of it's funny, you know. A lot of people say, "Oh, that must be so fulfilling." It's like, no, not really. Yeah, payday, payday is fulfilling, yeah. but it is fulfilling, you know. And I think as time goes by, that that you know, I talked about being really stupid, and I, I think it wears away. Mm -hmm. And I think the more, you know, today I was on Seventeenth Ave, and there's this guy I've seen him a whole bunch of times, and he's he's a homeless guy, and he walks on crutches, mm -hmm. and he walks like, um, remember the Carol Burnett show. Tim Conway when he do the old man and he just really I don't oh know, yeah yeah he just shuffle yeah. yeah this guy's like this and he takes like if he cross an intersection it's gonna be about three lights yeah and I'm standing I'm by my bike and I'm watching him and I've seen him many times and just two inches mm -hmm. two inches and I look at his hands and they're dirty and they're black and they're calloused and his I don't know what he was wearing for shoes it was like wrapped up Velcro or mm -hmm. something and his pants are oily and anyway I'm I'm seeing him and. I'm like, I should help him. And someone else hopped across the road and is like, I should give him some money. I got some money in my bag. I should give him. So I hummed and hawed and is like, yeah, no, I need to. So I kind of, I go over this way and I, I wait till he come, come shuffling up. And I said, hey, how you doing? And you know, he looked up at me and he had the kindest eyes. I said, mm -hmm. you want some money? He's like, no. Yeah. I said, are you sure? I said, it's okay. I got some. I got extra. No. And it just, it blew me away today, you know? that that guy there was some, that guy had something yeah you know he had nothing but he had something i, I kind of wish i knew what it was i know exactly he had something about. man yeah and, he does. and there i seen light in his eyes mm -hmm. you know and he didn't he didn't need my money yeah you know it was that was one of the that was very that weird for me. from that story yeah it yeah. was so weird dave you mm -hmm. know and uh it was weird but after looking in his face i felt good you know yeah. It felt good. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I know exactly what you're talking about. He is a gentle soul, that one. You know who I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah he walks up and down 17th, like, pretty much every day, all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's got to take him a day. Oh, for sure, right? <laughs> like, he does He does one loop every day. Yeah. Because <laughs> he does. He just moves at his own pace. Yeah. 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 And But I tell you, he, he's bent over, but he looked up at me, and he, his eyes were light. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, because that's like that kindness, right? Yeah. Some people just have that, like you said. Some people are just born with it, and they carry that love and that light in them, mm -hmm. no matter what the world punches mm -hmm. them with or kicks them with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't, I can't relate to that, but I, yeah. I get that, and it's so nice to see it. Mm -hmm. For me, it always reminds me of like stories, like my dad used to talk about, you know, finding Jesus in humans, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily think it's Jesus, but it's that idea. When I see that light, yeah, right? it was kind of like when I first started working with um, in a, in treatment stuff. That light that we see when it comes on in people, right? Yeah, when they go from hopeless to hopeful, 
Yeah. Like that is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when, of course, when someone who you think, who we think might need money is like, I got everything I need. Yeah. 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 That's a profound. It point. was profound. Because <clears throat> to me, it was like, you know something I don't. Exactly. Yeah. You son of a gun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got? What do you know yeah. that I don't? Yeah. Got to be something yeah. deep. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tony, man, this has been awesome. How long are we at? Hour and six. Hour and six minutes? See, it goes by like nothing. Yeah, I can talk to yours off a of jackrabbit. I love yeah. it. Me too. We yeah. can just keep going. Uh, is there anything else, like anything you'd say to anybody out there, man, if they're struggling or. I don't know. None of us have a magic bullet, obviously, because there no. isn't one. No, you know, I don't. I, I don't really know. I the I guess if there's anything that if it ever comes to a time that they really truly want to stop, mm-hmm. that there is there is an avenue. Mm-hmm. You don't the hopelessness doesn't exist only within ourselves because there is yeah. there is an, another avenue if you, if you seek it yeah yeah i guess that's it you know because mm-hmm. i don't you know i work with people that people you know some of our men were relapses because he didn't do step 1 and i oh horse shit yeah you know and then it's oh he wasn't ready oh, i i there is no re- i don't know i don't know i don't know I, and the more i'm in this field i don't know I really don't. That is such a good answer, right? Because more and longer we're alive, too, yeah. right? We just realize, yeah. fuck, I don't know anything. No, I don't. I don't know when these people are ready, and I, they don't know when they're ready. Yeah. And all I can be is, when it is at that magic time for them, when mm-hmm. it, things, the stars have fallen where they're supposed to for them, and they're mm-hmm. right, that I'm there to be able to pass on some information yeah. that might assist them. That's and it's it. about That's about it. And if it's any more than that, I'm going to have a troublesome day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if there's something specific in mind. Yeah. Because then I'll just get in the fucking way. Yeah. Right. And especially if I have, or if I have some sort of agenda, Absolutely. you know, and that coming into that, I think that's what goes. When someone says to me, Dave, I relapsed because of this. I just say, no, you, you relapse because you're an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, really, if I'm going to, if, if I, if it happens, it's because of, of that it's not because i'm morally weak or not Mm -hmm. able to grasp something it's because eventually if i don't pay attention do those things that we have to do like meetings fellowships step work all Mm -hmm. the stuff involved um then eventually my default is to drink i've learned that right like that's that's my default so it's not because i'm weak minded or weak spirited that doesn't enter into it this natural propensity to go. That's right. Yeah. To go backwards, right? Yeah. Like to yeah. to go back to what what I was when I was so afraid. Yeah. You know, and and now what do we do when we get afraid? Well, we got to do different things. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or or it's not that far away. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, full mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedoms Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.